My name's Tom Jennings, and this is the 24 Frames Cast. And this is going to be my 2018 review show. And I know uh, it's a little bit, um, I suppose, late to the game in terms of doing these types of review shows, but I simply need a good month sometimes to go back, have a look at the films that I... Uh, enjoyed or didn't enjoy in 2018 also as well to try and catch up um, on as many as I didn't see in a short space of time so I could at least sound slightly informed when I'm talking about some of the films which I know were incredibly popular in 2018 so uh, basically I just wanted to give myself a little bit of breathing space to get my list my top 10 sorted out and solidify a few of my thoughts on what I thought of 2018 um as always, the rule, I always make this point every time we do one of these review shows, I might talk about films which um, people may have seen in 2017, depending on where you live in the world. Um, my, my simple rule is, for my review show, is that the film in question had to have had a 2018 release date in the United Kingdom. So, without any further ado, I'm going to get right on with it, and this is my look back at 2018. Okay, so... Whilst 2018 was going on, I was pretty much of the opinion that it wasn't going to be a particularly strong year in cinema. And then as I was going back and looking over all the films that I saw, I think I must have got through about 50 odd films for a 2018 release. They actually looked back at the list and I thought there was quite a lot of good films on that list. There were some interesting ones. There was a real sense I think that I was watching a lot of films from different parts of the world and a few filmmakers who I have a vested interest in had kind of come back and we'll get to those kind of who those people were and overall I think I actually thought 2018 was a pretty decent year in terms of cinema now it was a strange year for me for a number of reasons because I noticed that over the course of the year I was watching so many films, so much television, um, reading loads from comics and novels, and I kind of realised why that was uh, round about August, September, and it was simply because I had become so bored of the kind of the climate that we're living in at the moment and especially what it's happened with culture that really I think I was trying to not even making a conscious effort to do it I was just simply doing it as a way of getting away from having to hear about Brexit Donald Trump identity politics and I, I just noticed that I was retreating more and more and trying to avoid social interactions in which I had to talk with people about these subjects because it was becoming truly boring and it reached a point where I found myself increasingly having quite volatile exchanges on Twitter with various people, obviously people I'd never met before, especially when it was coming to film and just having general discourse about the state of film culture. Um, it all kind of really started, I guess, when I managed to get myself embroiled in a Twitter spat with a university professor who had taken Mark Cousins, the filmmaker and writer, to task 
over the fact that his history of film television series hadn't included as many women as it should have done. And I dare to suggest that it might be worth, rather than kind of having a discussion in which essentially his entire character was being dissected and destroyed, that perhaps it might be wise to actually try and engage personally with him and ask him why that was or what were there any kind of further thoughts on the subject. And this Twitter mob very quickly descended. Um, obviously, I was making this comment because I was a white male. Um, obviously, I was sexist because I didn't watch enough films with women in. And I refused, apparently, to call out uh, filmmakers who had troubling relationships with women and so on and so forth. And I was genuinely surprised for a number of reasons. One was the fact that a lot of the people who I seemed to be having these, this, this debate with were seemingly in positions of authority. They were university lecturers, um, academics, writers. And secondly was how just nasty and personal people were getting with their insults within minutes of a few tweets going astray. And it made me think about how we're talking about film again. Um, it seems to me, the, the conversation seems to me to get dumber as the years go by. So, for example, a film like, which I will talk about in more detail soon, like, for example, First Man, um, this was just the, the worst type of film to come out. It's all about men, and it's directed by men, and it's written by men, and it doesn't have X amount people of colour, and blah de blah de blah And therefore, we're not going to talk about First Man as a film. We're going to talk about what it's not, what it represents, um, the fact that it's the people making it are white, privileged males, and... It was kind of just dull to me to, to be talking about this all the time. But it, time and time again, I found myself having these types of conversations with people. And it, another incident that occurred was this idea that we should basically n n whitewash film history if, for example, you have directors who have histories of abuse or perceived abuse for example we shouldn't watch any Woody Allen films again apparently I don't personally believe this I for, for what it's worth I do not believe Woody Allen is a paedophile I just I just from everything I've read on that subject I'm quite confident to say I do not believe Woody Allen is a paedophile and I, I was out with friends and we were talking about it and so someone was someone said that they would never watch another Woody Allen film again and I said well I think that was a slightly ridiculous um proclamation to make and of course the person who I was talking to suddenly said well do you, do you, do you believe that you know, paedophiles should get to make films and I stated my case why I don't think he was a paedophile and of course this in turn brought a barrage of abuse from said person you know how could I do that how could I, I was basically enabling this type of behavior even though I didn't I still don't believe that it's true that 
you know, all these actresses who weren't working with him anymore, which I find absolutely cringeworthy that you have all these stars who turn around and say they'll never work with Woody Allen again. They would have been well aware of what these allegations were before they worked with him in the first place. And just look at how many of them have said they're not going to work in, who've got breaks from Woody Allen, some of them, you know, Oscar nominations and that prestige. And now suddenly, obviously, in the age of Me Too, it suddenly becomes incredibly fashionable just to drop people like him. And we moved on as well to more problematic um, Hollywood players you know Roman Polanski well you know Roman Polanski is a despicable person I think that's safe to say I mean he you know he has been he well he was tried and I'm pretty certain he was tried and convicted of child rape he's an awful human I, I don't really think that um he should get the pass that he does I find it surprising that he has managed to carry on making films however despite the fact I think he's a complete arsehole, I still don't think we should just erase his films from history. You can't do that to people. Their films are more more than just about directors. They are some of the parts. I'm not going to not watch Chinatown ever again because of Roman Polanski's past. I think it's too much of an important film. But we were moving on. People like Ingmar Bergman. Now, I know, I'm not actually aware... Um, of any kind of allegations of, about him, I don't. I, I when his name was mentioned in this, I have actually seen his name appear on a couple of other people's lists for these kind of directors who we should be shunning. But really, are we not going to watch any more Ingmar Bergman films now? Are we just going to say, right, well, you know, there, there's this allegation flying around, or that there's this record of behaviour. Ergo, that means that we can't talk about the Seventh Seal again or Persona. I think it's ridiculous. Um, I think. But I was becoming concerned because I know someone who was, who is, sorry, at university, who was saying that their course now, lots of films which were potentially problematic to people were being taken off the syllabus. And, and again, I, I just simply don't see how this is going to lead anywhere productive. I think we're going to have this kind of list of films whereby they are kind of approved by a kind of moral, by a panel of moral arbiters who will say, these ones are acceptable, these ones aren't, these ones are slightly problematic. And I just don't think that this is going to do anyone any favours. Um, I even came across a Twitter thread um, in which people were suggesting that Netflix should have a list before certain old films of things in contained in the, in the film that people may find offensive, such as racial stereotypes or attitudes towards women. And I really, again, I, I just, my mind is just so confused as to how people can honestly believe that, for example, the politics of Some Like It Hot are really that offensive to people. And I don't like to use the term snowflakes because I, it, it does sort of irritate me now. But, you know, are people really this weak? Are they really in need of being wrapped up in cotton wool and protected to this degree? But it does seem that there is a lot of voices out there who seem to be trying to suck the life out of film and to make to kind of erode any objective standards of quality when it comes to talking about films 
You need only look, for example, at Black Panther, which I, I, I was amazed that people thought Black Panther was that good. And even as a Marvel film, as a, as a Marvel film, I don't even think it's, it, it's, it, it's a patch on things like Thor Ragnarok or anything like that. It's way down the list of, of Marvel films, yet we have to talk about it like it is some sort of genuine prestige picture. And I think it would be ridiculous to ignore the fact that the reason why people are talking about it to the degree that they are is because it is a film with black people in it. And I, I find that utterly ridiculous. Um, it's so superficially obvious that this is what people are doing. And this idea that it made a billion dollars and that was massively surprising. I wasn't surprised by the fact that it made a billion dollars. And I don't think that it says anything particularly important that a film made by black people with a black cast made that amount of money because people will go and watch a Marvel film. They don't They don't care. I, I, I actually personally believe that people don't really give a toss about who's in a film. I mean, you know, Denzel Washington has been one of the biggest stars in Hollywood for, for, for almost my entire life. I don't think people really give a shit what colour people are when it comes to films. I think they'll just go and watch something, especially like a Marvel film. I take my girlfriend's daughter as a good example. Her and her friends will literally go and watch anything. And we'll, I will talk more about this phenomenon in a bit, but, you know, they will piled off to go and watch Black Panther. And I, I don't really think in any way, shape or form, any of them consciously going, oh, it's a film about black people, therefore, you know, aren't we progressive for going to watch it? And... Again, we are looking at films in the wrong way, I believe. I really do think that to bring all this cultural baggage and virtue signalling to films is to, the, is to the detriment of everyone, everyone because we're just not having interesting conversations. We are literally rating art in terms of what box it ticks. And I, I think it, it does, this does not bode well for the future of cinema and it doesn't bode well for the future of film criticism because I think there will be a point where, you know, we'll be talking, like I said, I'll be talking about First Man in a bit, but, you know, liking First Man is potentially problematic to some people because it's a film about a straight white male, you know, ride going on a rocket to the moon and the fact that, we don't, the only female character in it, it does seem quite like a naggy type person. Blah, fucking blah. I am so done with having these types of conversations. But the problem is, when you do talk about films, these are the types of conversations that you end up having to have. And, and moving in to 2019, I'm already seeing complaints being made about the award season picks that there's not enough female directors not enough female producers and that the people reviewing films aren't diverse enough and again it's a sad state of affairs i think because i think a lot of the time the outrage is so fake and contrived 
and designed to elicit outrage and this sense of injustice that it's hard, I think, to take it seriously. And there are, there are genuine issues at play here. You know, there aren't enough you know, women making films. You know, and, you know, I, I do believe that it's a good thing that Me Too has happened to a degree. I think it has helped expose, obviously, a horrendous culture of abuse and exploitation that was the norm for way too long and there is definitely positive dialogue happening however i do believe it needs to have some degree of self-awareness to rein itself in somewhat and actually kind of get get a grip slightly and realize that on just you know a piece of bad behavior 12 years ago on the set doesn't mean that someone should have their career completely ruined and it doesn't make you a sexist misogynist if you do for example like watching the films of Roman Polanski but we'll see how far this goes I'm not overly optimistic it's going to go lead anywhere particularly productive but another aspect of 2018 that I really really I think has come to I think we're reaching a point in the history of film where kind of like 2018, 2017, 2019, I think are going to be the years that the way in which we consume films dramatically changes. Now, this has obviously got to do with Netflix and streaming because I've always been, I, I felt that the con like with Netflix, especially their film, um, original films, it hasn't kept pace with their TV output and this is beginning to change and we'll be talking about some films on the Netflix slate very soon but Netflix I think um, more so than Amazon has become the go-to place for people to consume uh, films and television and I found going to the cinema this year to largely be a bit of a chore now I have in my house a home cinema, I have a projector, a decent sound system, a fantastic sound system in fact. I have an entire space in my house which is essentially a private cinema and I get a fairly high-end big screen experience. And again, my going to the cinema is based on a few things. I, I have to sort of, I have to make a point of going and I have to sort of certainly make it a special occasion to go. And there's various reasons for this. Mostly it's screening times. Um, frustratingly, the kind of the art house place in Manchester home, the, the, the screen, the, the films tend to be on a, a time like 20 to 4, and then the next screening will be at like half past 7 or something, which just isn't conducive to my needs. I will either be at work, or if I do go for an evening screening, I will have to wait around in town. I suppose I could go home and come back again, but again, that's just an, another added pain in the ass. And there's the fact that if the film runs over or I don't get back to the station in time, I'll have to get a taxi back to my house and suddenly that becomes quite an expense. And there's just various reasons really why I wouldn't go, plus the cost as well. It's like £9 um, to go to that cinema, which I think is quite a lot of money. Um, and when you go in there, 
home is one of those venues that is if you were to walk past it and look in you'd have no idea it was a cinema were it not for the film posters it's a, a venue which is for drinks food um having business meetings and the cinemas are placed up on the top floor and they look like it just looks like an office to be brutally honest with you and they are nice screens to be sure they're not massive sizes but it's a very comfortable environment to watch films in and you know the projection as always seems to be pretty much spot on but most of the films that are shown there i can get hold of at least two months after they hit the screens i can rent them and watch them in the comfort of my own home on my terms which is just more suited to me and the, the other end of this the kind of the multiplexes in manchester um i've had several really terrible trips to the cinema um my one of my biggest pet peeves on planet earth is loud eating i I literally cannot abide it i do actually genuinely believe i might have some sort of condition because as soon as i hear someone scoffing that's all i can focus on i get extremely irritated listening to it and i've had several screenings where i've had to go to the cinema and just had people munching in my ear shuffling making noises chomping on their nachos and if that's not annoying me i might notice perhaps that the screen is clipping the curtain by a couple of inches or the sound isn't loud enough and all of this kind of does my head in a little bit to a degree and I find the best thing to do is to go very early on a Saturday morning it seems to kind of root out a lot of the arseholes that pollute cinema but just genuinely going to the cinema um, sometimes can be a bit of a pain in the ass and I've noticed that I've, I mean, I watch way more films at home than I do at the cinema, but I've also noticed over the past year how people I know, whenever they talk about new films that they've seen, almost exclusively always talk about stuff that they've watched on Netflix. They just don't seem to go to the cinema. It's, oh, did you see this film on Netflix or that film on Netflix? And... It seems now that streaming, I, I, if it hasn't already, is going to be the, the, the dominant way of which people watch films. And it, it's making some very interesting conversations because obviously cinema chains aren't happy about the fact that they're losing people to Netflix. And I understand why it is happening. You're not having to worry about certain screen times you can literally watch anything when you want whenever you want but a lot of the times i think we are missing out people are not having the theatrical experience that certain films need to have and again i will get to some films in question whereby we're kind of seeing this no man's land of watching films which unless Netflix had paid for them, probably would never have seen the light of day. Um, They're being directed by big prestige directors, but they're not finding their way onto the big screen where before they would have done. And I think we're missing out a little bit because unless you've got a huge television or the kind of setup I have, you're essentially seeing everything as a kind of TV movie, albeit quite a high-end one. And I wonder what we're missing out because of this. And like I said, I think you'll probably, you'll probably guess what film I'm going to be talking about. But it seems just with Netflix, it's just an unstoppable 
rise to being the default place people go to consume film and television. And I'm not convinced this is really a good thing, um, like the kind of the demise of the high street shop. Um, if you kind of take away that so that social element of what going to a film is for some people and replace it just by having a load of content that they can screen whenever they want, are we missing out? Are we missing out on this kind of getting out? Are we going to become kind of even more kind of shut away in our houses all the time watching films? And I, I see it a lot on my train to work as well, where uh, people will be sat there on their smartphones watching films that they've downloaded onto Netflix. And I just want to scream. It's like, you know, films aren't supposed to be seen on phone screens. They should be seen in a kind of a bigger, on the biggest format possibly, I believe. And I, I just worry people are missing out as to what they see as being cinematic. It was it was odd because I know someone who watched Unforgiven on Netflix and they watched it on their uh, on their phone and, and they actually made comments along the lines of it just seemed the, the black bars, the old, the, that old conversation reared its head. And someone was saying, well, you know, we should go back to kind of like panning and scanning because on a certain phone it doesn't look good enough. And that terrifies me that people could actually even vaguely think about advocating that as being something that we need to do again. But perhaps it might happen. Um, I, I will be distraught if if it were to uh, uh, which brings me on to uh, digital um, sorry physical media and this was the year that I finally uh, made the upgrade to UHD and I have to say that I wasn't I ha or haven't been so far as blown away I guess by the the transition from D from VHS to DVD from DVD to Blu-ray. It hasn't had its wow moment for me yet. And don't get me wrong, there is a subtle difference I've noticed um, in the quality. But the price point at the moment, films from UHD is £25. Obviously now you get your Blu-ray chucked in there for free as well. Well, not for free, but part of the package. So you sort of get this sort of future-proof um, investment. But £25, I think, is a lot for um, a home video. And... I haven't been buying many UHDs. I, I, I did do a double dip. I picked up um, a Christopher Nolan UHD box set because I didn't have films like The Prestige, which I, I really wanted. And I, I did some sort of side-by-side -side comparisons of the UHD versions of films like Interstellar um, and Inception. And was it worth upgrading? No, not really, I have to say. Um, I, I wasn't blown away at all, I don't think, by watching the UHD version of, say, for example, Interstellar, um, that if you if you have that over the Blu-ray, the person who has the UHD is, is going to have some sort of transformative, uh, revelatory experience of watching it on that format. It just hasn't happened. I think the area where I have been massively impressed is in the world of things like nature documentaries, um, Planet Earth 2, uh, Blue Planet 2 and another series which I, I'm, I'm spoiler alert I suppose if, if I was if, if it counted as a film there was an episode of the BBC series Dynasties which I think was the best film I saw all year hands down I'll talk about it later but yeah these types of things because they're filmed on 4k even 8k 
um, you, you, you tend to get an image which really makes use of the format. Most UHDs, however, are upgrades to 4K from 2K masters. And this is primarily the case because of special effects. They can't render them at 4K, or they can do, but it would, it's, just, it's just too costly and time investment would make it um, a ridiculous like kind of addition to uh, post-production workflows. And so, so what you're kind of seeing isn't really a 4K image anyway. It's just been upgraded. And I have noticed um, that a lot of people who have gone over to UHD no one's been sort of evangelical who I know who's gone like, oh my God, it's the best thing ever. Computer games, for sure, I think look a lot better on that. Um, but I bought a OLED television and that came through the Netflix app or had um, 4K options and Dolby Vision options. And it does look amazing, to be sure. But again, um, there seems to be this idea that we kind of, we want better hardware all the time. And uh UHD, I don't think, is going to kind of be the, the sort of saviour of physical media that some people seem to want it to be. And there's a few films coming out on the format, which I'm looking forward to seeing again, which I'll talk about again when we get to it. But I don't really see myself going back through my uh, catalogue of films and upgrading to UHDs. It will be interesting, I think, to see if any of the boutique labels start putting out UHDs. Um, can I see Criterion going onto the format? I'm not sure at the moment, to be brutally honest with you. I, I, I would be surprised, um, especially as they're, you know, they're still going through you know, their back catalogue and upgrading them to Blu-ray. So I think it's a kind of case of watch, watch this space on that front. But I have been um, making a point of trying to support these kind of blue the, these these labels that are coming out um especially kind of like indicator master cinema obviously uh arrow and criterion sadly now though we have um hmv has obviously gone into administration uh, manchester has a fop which is the best shop i think to in, in manchester to buy films and music and it's a, such a shame if those shops do go because obviously the knock-on effect is that these kind of boutique labels, you know, it's another outlet for them that's, that's completely shut off and we then have to go to Amazon. And I would much rather support um, shops that kind of sell those types of uh, releases. But being in FOP recently, they're not stocking anything new. I wanted to buy the last movie, the Dennis Hopper film, which I'll be reviewing very soon. Um, and I had to, I bought it of Indicator as website in the end, which I don't mind doing because I didn't want to spend the money on Amazon. I would rather you know, go straight to the source, as it were. But it's just useful to have a place where you can pick up all these releases in one place. You don't have to kind of go on various different websites to buy them. You know, I know everyone kind of like shits on Amazon because obviously it's the evil corporation. But um, if these places go under. You know, you, you, we will find ourselves going there, and Amazon do do good special offers, especially on Criterion's two for twenty five pounds and that kind of thing, and five Blu rays for thirty quid. So, it's again, I think it's going to be an interesting year in twenty nineteen to see if the kind of the high street manages to uh, cling on in terms of buying physical media, or are we going to be pushed online you know, slowly go to the kind of the bait and switch of Netflix, which is you know we. 
you kind of go on there looking for uh, all all the kind of content, the kind of especially like older films and things like that. And obviously they're not there because like, they're banging out their own stuff. They're more interested in putting their you know Netflix produced television and films on. And again, we lose films in with various changing of formats. Um, you know, especially older films, more niche ones slip through the net and uh, I, it's, it's slightly worrying times I think but um, I'm pretty sure that as long as Blu-rays are still around people will still be buying them I, I, I don't I'm, I'm trying to be positive that uh, it won't just kind of fade away into memory okay so I'm going to move on to the worst films that I saw in 2018 and there were a few duds to be sure and I suppose I did talk about it early on last year but it's worth going back again and talking about Duncan Jones's Mute which was a Netflix produced mid-budget science fiction kind of spiritual follow-up to Jones's only good film um I, I, I don't think Moon is a masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination. I think people were uh, clutching at straws when they try and make it out to be one. But um, Mute was kind of takes place in the same universe as Moon. And it is, and I say this with all sincerity, and I, I, I don't say it lightly either, that Mute was possibly the worst film I have ever seen. And I, I've seen a lot of films in my life. And... I'm still gobsmacked because sometimes when I watch a film that I it is so bad, sometimes I am genuinely intrigued about them as to why why they're so awful, and I, I in some cases I will go back and watch them again. Sometimes I will even buy them so I can kind of digest what it is about them um suicide squad i I haven't actually bought that film but i've I've seen it again since i i I watched it and it's a monumentally crap film but mute was a diff a, a different kind of awful of just sheer thinking about my jaw is still on the floor as to what i saw it is just an abysmal abysmal work that Really, I think Duncan Jones comes across as someone who is an incredibly nice person on every sort of interaction I see him have on Twitter. He seems like a lovely, lovely guy. But Mute should really have been the end of his career. I I, I think it's that bad. I am just amazed that he's going to get to direct a Road Trooper film. Um, And boy, am I not looking forward to that film if, if he is at the helm. I will forgive his Warcraft film. I, again, that's a film which is awful that I actually quite liked. Um, I, I had quite a good time with it. Uh, Mute, however, is just... It, it's its shocking. Genuinely shocking. Um, I, I would love to have seen it get a cinema release. I would, I'd love to have known what would... I, I think if people could have physically seen how much money it would have lost at the cinema... Um, I think it could have had more disastrous consequences for his career. Obviously, with Netflix, they're not. You, you don't. We don't really know much about the figures. 
and the fact that this film could have been a financial failure is negated by Netflix. So it's it will always be there. It will always kind of exist in this sort of weird world where it wasn't a flop, but it is terrible. Um, and obviously, you know, films can be great and still be flops. The Shawshank Redemption is a, is a good example of that. But Netflix, in a way, it's a safe place, it's a safe harbour for Duncan Jones and Mute. So that was one of the worst experiences. Um, next came Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. And Guillermo del Toro is a director who I think I like the idea of his films and the fact that he makes them more than I actually like his films. I did like The Hellboys. I had good fun times with Pacific Rim. Um, but there's something about him where I think it's cool to like him. It's this idea that he's this kind of, he makes the, well, he did used to make these kind of body shock films and these gothic kind of romances. Uh, and I, th I think people like the idea of him more than they actually like his film. And The Shape of Water came out and I was just sat on my sofa at home cringing at it. The fact that this film won the best picture is just gobsmacking to me. But again, I think there was enough elements here where people were liking or talking about The Shape of Water for the wrong reasons. Um, for social justice reasons, I think it sort of became this kind of a cause film. It was a cipher for lots of things that were going on in the culture. I think it's terrible. Um, I, I really do. Um, I, I, th I thought it was it was awful, and I'm just amazed that it got as much love as it did. Next up um, was a film called Jupiter's Moon, um, and I, I I don't recall a single thing about this film other than the fact that I thought the trailer looked good, and the kind of the concept as well of sort of refugees with superpowers seemed quite interesting but I just don't remember anything about this film other than watching it being absolutely bored to tears um don't I think it's on Netflix um and yeah don't be fooled by its premise Jupiter's Moon was legitimately terrible Darkest Hour was the Churchill one of the first films I saw last year um and you had Gary Oldman pretending to be Winston Churchill uh, it was awful. I, I watched a bit of it again on Sky the other day, and it was that cringeworthy subway scene with Churchill in it. And of course, we're not allowed to like Winston Churchill anymore because he was a white supremacist and a Nazi, probably. Um, but yeah, I, I just thought Darkest Hour was was awful. It was boring. Um, it was. I didn't think Gary Oldman's performance was Oscar worthy. I don't think it was an award-winning performance at all. I think it was just mimicry. In the end, it just began to annoy me. Um, Let the Sun Shine In was a fucking annoying French film about the type of people who stay in hotels that you can't afford to stay in. Um, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Um, again, that was another one which people seemed to go crazy over. I didn't like it. I didn't find it. A, a particularly interesting film. Um, it was interesting the debate that I suppose kind of came about the Sam Rockwell character, you know, someone who's so overtly racist who doesn't kind of go through the film. 
and have this kind of redemption that people demand that a character like this have. That was actually something which I thought was um, an interesting talking point about it. But overall, I, I, I've, it was another one of those films that kind of passed me by, really. Um, the post was Steven Spielberg's excruciatingly smug and self-important film about the Pentagon Papers that it was kind of like someone had taken the 70s paranoia thriller and replaced it with just sermonising at every single available opportunity. And there were just some moments in it where those Spielberg kind of schmaltzy bits there was what there was one particular moment where they're putting out the newspapers on the table and the camera kind of cut to Tom Hanks and Mel Streep sort of looking down at them with this kind of Frank Capra esque the little man's winning type expression on their face. And I'm not really kind of explaining it that well, but if anyone has seen the film you might know what I'm talking about. And I was just like, Oh, please just give me a break. It was absolutely awful. And there was a double bill of Spielberg this year. And I, Ready Player One was... I I kind of enjoyed it. I enjoyed watching it with my girlfriend's son. He loved his eight. And it's the type of film that's made for people like that. But again, it was okay. I, uh, But it did kind of remind me that I think Spielberg is a director who... He's kind of lost it for me now. It is going back and looking over his older films. I had a, a revelatory rescreening of AI actually um, this year, and I'm going to do an episode on that uh, because it, for once I think I actually got the film for a number of reasons, which ages had a lot to do with. But yeah, this year it was kind of sad really with the post and Ready Player One because you had. You know, him apparently doing a serious film and doing his kind of popcorn kiddie stuff and both just seem to show to me that he's he's a director who I just don't think is relevant anymore at all in terms of the, his, his modern uh, uh, films. Okay, so next we're on up to a category of film that I find probably the most frustrating type of film that I watch, which is the, the three-star film. The film that you kind of like, you kind of don't not like and you have a sort of a kind of a feeling of overall just being like yeah it's okay and then you kind of move on from it and don't bother ever thinking about it again and in fairness there were quite a lot of films that I saw in 2018 that made me feel like this there was Beast which was a Guernsey set kind of psychological thriller thing that I was kind of down with for a bit, but then I kind of realised that it was pretty much like everything you see in terms of kind of like a a BBC Two film or a Channel Four film, and it just felt very, very familiar. And rather quickly, uh, at about an hour and a half, I was ready for it to end. There was my friend Dharma, which I thought was going to be the kind of indie serial killer type film coming of age american college film which again it started off quite promisingly i felt that the the story about what happened to the character of it was based on a, a, a real life serial killer uh, was kind of far more interesting what he got up to in later life than this it didn't really 
stay with me a great deal. BPM, which it was a film I actually feel bad about not liking because it was one well, on liking is not the word, but by God, I was bored for it. And it was a a French film about the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s. And I, it, to be brutally honest with you, it just really bored me. It just seemed to be scene after scene of a kind of uh, AIDS awareness advocacy group, uh, just scenes of them just kind of having these meetings in which people click their fingers in order to get attention. And it was just, it, it, it seems to go around in circles and circles. And I, 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 I did not like it at all. I was just really quite unmoved by it and frankly rather bored. Um, Zama was the art house darling, which everyone seemed to be going on about. Um, a friend of mine was particularly obsessed with it and was insistent that I watched it. And um, I found it to be a quite pretty film. But overall, it was literally at the time I had paint drying in the room I was watching it in. And that was infinitely more interesting than actually sitting through the film i i, I just don't I, I don't understand why it seems to be such a uh, a critical hit and i i don't know if it kind of showed a real difference in the way kind of critics and audiences um are taking in films because i don't know anyone other than that one friend i have um, who had, who's had anything massively popular to say about this film. It really does seem to have kind of polarised critics and audiences. Um, I, 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 cause I recommended it to the people and I had other people talk about it to me and kind of everything else I've seen online, it doesn't seem to have much kind of audience reaction at all. Um, Unsane was a Steven Sodenberg uh, attempt at making a film about mental illness, filmed on iPhone. Um I found it just to be quite annoying in the end. Uh, I guess it's an experiment in film. Um, it didn't really do a great deal for me. I dare say there's some people out there who might really be down with it. Um, now, The Mercy was one of two Donald Crowhurst films that we had this year. Um, the second one being Crowhurst. And both found it quite hard to make a film about a man going mad at sea. Actually quite interesting, I thought. Um, it, but both had different degrees of uh, budgets. And it's interesting to see, obviously, two actors, um, Justin Salinger and Colin Firth, kind of take on the same role and what a different actors bring to it. And I, I don't believe either of them really found a way into Crowhurst that I could kind of get completely down with. And um, I wanted to like Crowhurst more, I think, because I thought it would kind of be the sort of a, the lower budget pluckier. And it's kind of more experimental attitude in a lot of the scenes, the kind of the... The, the singing at the camera and the uh, reconstructed newsreel footage um, didn't really work. I think it actually belied the film's lack of budget, to be brutally honest with you, which was a shame. But um, You Were Never Really Here was a film which I went into, and I'm a really big fan of Liam Ramsey, um, and I really also normally enjoy Joaquin Phoenix, and I was kind of felt at, arm, at arm's length from this film. I never quite got into it how I thought I was going to. It did have a Johnny Greenwood score, which I actually liked, um, which which was a, a first really for me when it comes to it comes to his work. But I just felt that the film's style was a little bit too much, and I realised about halfway through it that it was always going to be in that vein and 
I think it's a classic case of another viewing might be required before I can really kind of get to grips and tune into You Were Never Really Here to see if I liked it. Um, it, it was a really hard experience to, to watch. It was a, it's, a, it's a quite a nasty film. It's a bold film as well. I, I, I really do kind of like hats off for Lynn Ramsey for, for making it, but I'm just not quite sure that the style of You Were Never Really Here becomes what the film is really about. And I know it's kind of the whole kind of style over substance thing, but I, I just felt that she had gone too far in trying to make this too different from the normal kind of hitman on a revenge mission. I don't know. Um, you know, I guess it, it felt like a worthy attempt that didn't quite work for me. I know a lot of people who really, really enjoyed this film. And there was kind of talk of... Um, the fact that she wasn't nominated for an Oscar, and you know, she should have been nominated for and blah, blah, blah. And I can see why people like the direction of the film. It's a very stylized, directed piece. But, as I said, not quite sure about it at this stage. Um, Lady Bird, obviously I've spoken about that before, had its moments, but um, I tried watching it again when it was on Sky the other day, and I got bored after half an hour and switched it off and went and watched something else. Um, there was fun to be had in Mission Impossible Fallout. Now, it was way too long and convoluted, but this was, it was cinema at its most awe-inspiring. And it's a kind of Tom Cruise is a star who's also an auteur. He is a modern-day Buster Keaton, I think. Um, and the Mission Impossible films have got consistently better through the franchise history. And I really, really, really enjoy them. I, I, I... I they're made, they, they seem to be, you compare them with someone, something like Solo, which, um, like, like Solo, which seems just an absolute misery for everyone to make. Everyone on these Mission Impossible films seems to be having the time of their lives. And it has helped so much by Cruz as an actor and his dedication to doing everything for as real as possible. That helicopter scene at the end... In, in, in other films, you'd have like 30 helicopters fighting each other and it'd all be CGI and you wouldn't really give a shit. But this just becomes like a duel between two guys. And it's, you, it's it makes such a difference to know Tom Cruise is up there doing it. You buy into the film. It has a genuine, genuine physical effect on you that you simply do not get when it's wall-to-wall CGI. Now, I did think the film was slightly too long i think it's visual mayhem was beginning to kind of wear thin on me a little bit but it was a cinematic experience um and it was just bold ludicrous fun and i didn't have really any idea what was going on in it but i was just enjoying the fact that it had actually been made mandy was a nicholas cage ghost biker acid fuel crazy psychedelic experience um that again there are two schools of thought when it comes to Mandy. On the one hand, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was just crazy, stupid fun. But I was also consciously aware of the fact it felt like those god-awful Quentin Tarantino, Rodriguez, um, Grindhouse films that we had a few years ago, in which... They were, spent a lot of money to try and make films that looked really, really low budget. And all I was aware of when I was watching the films, they weren't low budget at all. They were actually kind of like medium budgeted films trying to look cheap. 
and it kind of lessened it for me. I just thought, actually go out with $100,000 and make films and see what see where it gets you. And I felt kind of manly. It was like that. Something about it felt slightly disingenuous, almost like it was trying to be this sort of crazy, out there, mad film and they cast Nicolas Cage to look at the camera with his fucking eyes like he's just been doing crystal meth for two solid weeks. And the kind of the bad guys are these kind of biker gang from hell type stuff. And I'm watching it thinking, if I was going to make a film that was like this, these would be the kind of cliches you would write down on a piece of paper. To, you know, you'd look at them and think, well, you know, we'll have... A, 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 you know, blood splattered revenge stuff, and you would kind of, you know, these are the elements that make one of these types of films. And once you break it down, I don't think it really does anything that's particularly new or revolutionary. And yet the way people were talking about it was like it was the first picture of its kind. And I was sort of thinking, yeah, you know, I, I kind of get why you enjoy it, but if I want to watch a kind of acid-filled crazy film like this, there's, there's better out there. And the fact that the sort of the Nicolas Cage craziness about it, you know, was almost like it was this sort of meta performance by Cage in which he was playing crazy Nicolas Cage, even more crazy than normal. Yeah, he is. He's just playing crazy Nicolas Cage. And if that's your thing, then go for it. And I, again, I, I've noticed a real polarisation with Mandy. Some people have gone absolutely mental over it. They love it. It's the best film in ages and it's just this crazy style and it sticks to its guns. And other people are going, for the exact same reasons, actually, I don't like it at all. I'm not along with it. And uh, I, again, I, on, on, on a different day, I could be really not liking it at all. And then on another day, I think I could be really enjoying it. It's the type of film I probably like want to watch with friends or something like that. I don't know. But... Um, I think it's one of those where it'll be reassuringly dirt cheap on Blu-ray soon. If I see it for three quid, I might pick it up and go and have another look. Okay, so next up are the films that I either liked or felt quite strongly or passionately about. Um, I certainly didn't dislike them, and I certainly didn't love them in some cases. So it's the kind of the, it's the undecided and the good, I suppose I'll call this section. Hereditary was a genuinely shocking art house horror affair that for two thirds of its running time had me completely hooked. And then it did what sadly I think almost every horror film does. It had to explain itself and in doing so it became every other horror film ever made. And it kind of left me frustrated in one way because I'm, I've, I sort of wonder now if it's ever possible to make an original horror film again. I don't know. But with Hereditary, I just felt that premise was such so good for that first two thirds. It was a really genuinely cinematic, creepy film. And it's almost like that they ran out of ideas and then basically probably looked at their Blu-ray shelf and made a mashup of their favourite horror films. But Again, it was a genuinely creepy film. It was a really cinematic film, I found. Um, unnerving. One moment in it is, was the most shocking scene that I saw all year. I literally, my mouth was on the fucking floor when it happened. But again, it was another one of those films that people I know were going crazy over it and critics were going crazy over it. And I was just like, I don't know. I, I think I was pretty kind of tampering my, not 
uh, I, I, I guess my my feelings for it. I didn't want to be too vocal about how I really felt it because I kind of felt like, am I the one missing out here? Am I, am I not seeing something? And I went back and I watched it again, um, knowing obviously what happens in the end. And yeah, it still kind of fell a bit flat for me. Um, I, I, th I think it's one of those, I, that whole kind of horror, the, the art house horror film, I think it kind of gets away from that. I think it transcends that. I, I think it's just a legitimately good psychological horror film. Um, but Again, I, I, I just felt it was very familiar watching it. I, I didn't really feel like it was kind of doing anything that I've seen before. And uh, that was a little bit of a shame because I, I genuinely felt that we were heading towards something that was going to genuinely surprise me. And in the end, it really didn't. Um, the Wound was a South African circumcision coming of age tale um, that was absolutely wince inducing. Um, just a quick hint, they don't use anaesthetic and as a rite of boys... Uh, sorry, as a rite of passage, these boys have to basically go out onto the countryside where a doctor turns up and slices off their foreskin. And then the film was about the kind of the the, the ritual of them becoming uh, men. And uh, it was a tough film to watch at times. Um, and it made me ask some quite uncomfortable questions, really. Um, I personally think uh, male circumcision is utterly disgraceful in, in any context it's a cultural tradition uh, tradition sorry that needs to stop yet um i felt kind of slightly conflicted when i was watching the film because i was looking at these people doing this and i thinking, oh my god that's barbaric and yet it's something that's so well accepted in western culture and in certain religions and i i i, I, I was aware of the fact that I was kind of criticising another culture um, for doing something which is so widespread here. And I, again, it, I think it just solidified the fact that I find circumcision so unpalatable uh, an act to perform on people. Um, and the wound really, uh, although it is kind of, I suppose, the inciting incident is this, this moment, um, really genuinely surprised me. Um, as to the direction where it went and it was in my top 10 for quite a bit of the year actually um, before it was kind of displaced by another one but it's currently on Sky at the moment um, definitely uh, watch it obviously it's more than just um, obviously it is slightly wince inducing just be aware of that but um, Through the Eyes of Awesome Worlds was a fascinating film essay by Mark Cousins that looked at the artwork of Orson Welles and its relationship to his films. Now, Cousins is a unique filmmaker. I think he's an auteur in the truest sense. His films have an almost amateurish feel about them, but it is, in fact, the fact that, in fact, it's more that they are deceptively simple observational type films. But this is a... I guess almost an oversimplification of Cousins in style because it, uh, they're actually the most deeply personal projects I, I, I see. His camera, often his phone, and it's, in the case of this, he's using a DJ Osmo at sometimes. Um, he, he would just kind of dart from one image to the next. And you'll see the artful tower at night or a road in Ireland. And you get the impression that this is a filmmaker who's simply in awe of the, realm, the world around him through his consumption of film. He just it seems to absorb it in such a cinematic way. And it's almost like, well, he doesn't need, he's not going to suddenly grab a 70 minute camera. He's going to grab his phone and film something because you can tell he's seeing it 
and just it's just these feelings and love of film are coming out of him. And he has a way to visually explain his film theories in such an engaging and unique way. And for all the YouTube and Vimeo film essays that you see, none are ever quite as personal as and fascinating as his take on the medium. He is a guide to understanding film in a far more enriching and exciting way and he's an accomplished filmmaker to boot I, I kind of think he deserves more credit for his directorial work and it is an acquired taste for sure but i cannot recommend his films enough okay so these are coming up now are the films that i either liked or really liked that didn't make the top 10 but perhaps on another day might have okay so another film that i watched and kind of liked but couldn't quite see why everyone was going so crazy about it was Alfonso Cuaron's Roma. It is the critical darling release of 2018 and it was lurking around my top 10 but I had to be honest with myself. I liked the film. I liked it quite a lot actually. Although I did not get to see it in the cinema and it was one of the early films that was christened in the new film room. It is a huge film shot on digital 65mm and like Alfonso Cuaron's previous work, it is supremely cinematic. The camera moves are so well composed that at times the film is just simply too beautiful and you just want to pause it and gawp at the screen. Everyone, it seems, has taken Roma to be a modern masterpiece. In fact, last night it won Best Picture at the BAFTAs. Now, I was there most definitely for its visual, but in the intervening weeks, I seem to have found myself feeling slightly more problematic about the film. There's no way of actually getting around this, and I'm just going to have to be completely honest. But one of the reasons I think Alpha, uh, Roma has not quite sat quite right with me is that I feel it kind of takes the exact same patronising and condescending attitude to the working classes that I see so often in British films. Now, this is by autobiographical um, from Curon. Um, we understand that he, I mean, he grew up um, in an upper middle class neighbourhood, um, the titular Roma in the film. And I think this is a decidedly middle class person's view of the world as they perceive it. And I came to the rather sorry conclusion that Roma is an art house version of the help. This film's protagonist and family nanny and maid is Cleo, whom we spend a year in the life of. The film constantly reminds us of the difference in class between her and who she serves. She lives in annex away from the family house and she's kind of a jack of all trades from attending to the kids to clearing up, well, to not clearing up dog shit to the satisfaction of the absentee father. It's a sympathetic and at times moving character and Cleo gets, I think, one of the most emotionally wrenching scenes of the entire year. Yet the, the film wallows in the patronising idea of the nobility of the working classes. They are often presented as ciphers to shoon on heavy-handed morality lessons. Cleo is kind of a mute and she goes back about her business in the face of adversity. The father of her child, well, the father of her child-to-be, sorry, is a complete arsehole. Because, of course, poor parent people make terrible parents. 
They always do in class-obsessed films. Yet Cleo nobly battles on, even when everything is stacked against her. She even brings the family back together, literally, in one of the film's most climactic scenes. It's all well-meaning, I suppose, and it doesn't surprise me that the film has been so well-received for precisely the reasons why the films like this are always liked. They are, I think, reassuring to some people. They see the working class as being reliant on the middle in exchange for services rendered, but also it's the working classes of whom we're able to see the better side of ourselves. We need each other to be better people. In short, I found the film slightly obvious to a degree. Of course Cleo is the nicest and the best person in the film, and I found it quite devoid of tension or anything really. I guess the fundamental issue of the film was is that I just didn't think it was doing anything that I had never really seen before in terms of its narrative or what it was trying to say. There is no denying that Roma is an aesthetic triumph. It belongs to be seen on the biggest screen possible, which kind of leads to the Netflix quandary. Yes, this was produced by Netflix, but it does also show the downside of the service. I could see how on the small screen the film's cinematic impact would be somewhat diminished. It is a story that is decidedly observational. The image combined with the camera work is the main reason to see it, I believe. It's a huge shame then that almost everyone will not get to see the film on the big screen. But this is the new world, I guess, and I would rather it existed as opposed to it not. And if Netflix were happy to pay for it, then good luck to them. I do need, I think, to see Roma again. Perhaps on second viewing, I would come to have more appreciation for it, as opposed to the admiration that I feel for it now. Next up on the almost list was That Summer. This was a documentary about artist Peter Beard and his girlfriend, whose cousins were none other than Edith Bill and Edith Bouvet, stars of the infamous The Bills of Grey Garden. Now, it is kind of a follow-up film that sheds more light on the Bills story. I enjoyed it, and if you love those crazy pair, then this features some more footage of the family at play. It's still hilarious, sad, and tragic seeing them, and almost slightly muddled film. That summer was just kind of nice to hang around in its company for about an hour and a half. Paul Schrader's first reform was Taxi Driver meets the Catholic Church in a depressing take on a, on a priest played by the brilliant Ethan Hawke, struggling to come to terms with his place in, a, in the world and the role of the church in an increasingly spiritually lost America. It was a nice reminder that a survivor from the Hollywood's greatest period can still be making interesting, rewarding films. I did also watch this year a series of thoroughly unimpressive documentaries that I have come to recognise as a new genre called the worship film. Now, the worship film is not there to challenge your perception or indeed its subject in any meaningful way. Instead, it is to elicit a nostalgic sense of wonder or simple appreciation. And if you learn anything new from it, that can be an added bonus. The first film I saw of this was Studio 54, Matrona's 90-minute history of the iconic club. It had a great soundtrack of disco hits from the time. It was fast edited with various wipes showcasing the rich and famous party going on at the club. It was great fun. It was a rise and fall of a clubbing institution steered through the 70s by owner Stephen Ian. 
Now these guys knew how to put on a night and surviving partner. Ian shows Studio 54 has a legacy, one which the documentary wants to present you in the most favourable light possible. It does not take a genius to work out that there is another story here, only one that is hinted at in the documentary, yet never really explored. No doubt had the filmmakers gone down this route, then it's hard to see how anyone involved in Studio 54, the workers or any of the owners or the people that frequented the club would dare speak about it. And it makes for Studio 54 a strangely superficial, if very good fun, film. Another example was Westwood, another fun, if strangely empty love letter to fashion designer and icon Vivian Westwood. It was a tonally confused film, part biography, part celebration, and part stuff with her hilarious partner, Anders. It veered from one thing to the next that occasionally raised eyebrows and highlighted the utter absurdity of the fashion world. I also saw McQueen, the biopic of Alexander McQueen, the fashion designer, and one couldn't help feel that fa the fashion world exists to stop those in it from having to interact with the real world. It's kind of a buffer that protects us all from each other, giving us the opportunity to stare into each other's sphere with baffled curiosity. Like Westwood, McQueen loves its subject matter, a kind of East End tragedy of a hugely talented person struggling with his demons. It was a painfully sad film, yet like Westwood seemed too in love with its subjects to really ever feel more than just a puff piece. By far the worst offender of this, however, was the documentary My Generation, an excruciating look back at 60s London in which Michael Caine narrated and occasionally appeared in a thoroughly pointless and tragically contrived piece of nostalgic porn that seemed like some form of infomercial for a tourist company that had invented a time machine and could travel you back into 1968 Camden. It was offensive to my eyes and making it through the entire runtime surely makes me eligible for some kind of award. One film I will forgive, however, was Robson More Than a Manager, about the managerial career of the legend Bobby Robson, possibly one of my favourite people ever. It did fall into the trap of being slightly too reverential, but it was about Bobby Robson, so it's going to get a pass. And I'm not saying these types of films can't be entertaining, for a degree they are, but worse they leave you with a rather sad feeling that the access to the story you get has come at a price and that price is the pieces between the stories who was really behind all the money in studio 54 for example well we can guess who don't expect you to really hear such harsh truths for anyone who actually knows it and of course this can't be a review of the year without discussing superheroes 2017 gave us wonder woman a female lead directed by a woman me too, blah, 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 Hollywood change, blah, fucking blah. It was Black Panther, of course, in 2018. At last, Hollywood had done it. It had made a superhero with a black lead rejoice. In fact, it just reminded me how much I enjoyed 1998's Blade, a film with a black lead superhero made 20 years ago. But never mind, this is now and we need Black Panther. Yes, that's right, we needed Black Panther to help us be better people, to show the world that we are ready to accept a black superhero made by a black man, with not a single person or scene actually ever leaving America and being filmed in Africa. It's a testament to our times that the film that this film has even been considered a serious contender for some awards it's average at best it does nothing marvel has never done before and it, some of it looks decidedly terrible 
half-finished effects in environments that remind me of computer games Horizon Zero Dawn I've been playing on my PlayStation 4. It went on and on and on for its last half hour. I was bored. This was a filler film before we're steering us towards Infinity War. And the idea that this is anything more than just an average entry into the Marvel canon is frankly utterly ludicrous. But the reaction to it is because of the times we live in. Identity politics, victim culture, you name it. This film seems like the tonic for it. Black Panther exists simply to shepherd in the Infinity War and induce us and introduce us, sorry, to more Marvel characters. The idea that it's anything more, that it's anything that we should be completely going crazy over is utterly, utterly ridiculous. It's a film that critics can like because of the fact it plays to all the ideas of what being woke means. I didn't buy it at all. I'm quite happy to say that I just think Black Panther is a massive dose of all right. And I really cannot take the critical adulation of it seriously at all. It's a depressing state of film criticism, I think. It's Marvel product, which leads me on to Infinity War. Now, this was the one that was going to bring them all together. The years of standalone and Avengers films. And now we have arrived at the party. This is going to be the film that Marvel has been building up towards for all these years. Only I thought it was a fraud of a film. It's just product again, nothing more, and Marvel does not even pretend it is anything else. We know that these characters killed off are going to going to magically return because some of them have already had sequels announced after the Infinity Wars. And as the likes of Star-Lord and Peter Parker turned to dust before my very eyes, I made a mental note of how much money Marvel would lose should this actually be it. And we know it isn't. There is no way, no way on earth, that most of these characters won't be coming back in some form. And this is what I'm used, is what happens when movies are made by corporations. They look good. And I was actually surprised at how well acted Infinity Wars was. And I guess these people have had to practice in these characters. But, and this is a big but, there are no risks being taken here really. It would be the equivalent of an oil company investing all their money in renewable energy in order to reduce fossil fuel usage. The fact of the matter is, Avengers Infinity War is not really a film. We join it halfway through and leave it somewhere for the next instalment to begin. It's a chapter in a film franchise that will go on and on and on. And yet it does do a lot of things right. Thanos and his nihilism was legitimately engaging to watch and the film straddled several different tonal changes with aplomb. It's funny, it's sad, at times a visual feast that is genuinely overwhelming. I was never really bored by it. Moreover, I was there in the moment, but consciously aware of the fact that I didn't believe the film. It's impossible to be overly bothered at what you are seeing, because ultimately, Marvel will have you back here again to see exactly the same people in a similar situation. Now, had the end of Infinity War actually have been an ending, then I genuinely believe this would be one of my favourite films of the year. I think it would have been one of the most bravest studio films ever made in the history of Hollywood, but it wasn't, and trust. And as someone who reads comics, I think it's safe to say that there will be more twists to come, and magically, those multiple, those multiple franchises will somehow be able to find a way of keep going on and on. 
And that wasn't it for Marvel. Of course, there was Ant-Man, which I haven't got to see yet. There was Deadpool 2, which was fun for about 10 minutes. And then I realized I had another two hours to go. And I began to wonder why people keep making these films so long. Deadpool needs, as a character, to come back into the Marvel Universe. Because I rather feel he's going to run out of things to do currently. And of course, we have to talk about DC, which I think was rocked somewhat by the surprise hit Wonder Woman. And then the dud Justice League in 2017. I could not tell you what happened in the Justice League. I simply cannot remember a single thing about it. But DC seems to have kind of come back with Aquaman, which, as I write has just surpassed the $1 billion territory, which seems incredible for a character, which I'd never really read many Aquaman comics. I don't know a great deal about him, but it really does seem to have connected with audiences, giving DC a 2018 mega hit. And in other franchise films, of course, we had the complete disaster that was Solo, which seems to have put the skids on Star Wars somewhat. And 2019, we will get the concluding piece, hopefully, of this new trilogy. Um, I don't think anyone's looking forward to it anymore. I, I, I really don't. Um, I, I would be gobsmacked if this film were to lose money. Um, but I, I don't think it's a guaranteed hit. I think it might be touch and go. Um, I'm definitely done um, with the new Star Wars trilogy. They're terrible films. Um, and it's not because I'm a cisgender white male and and I, I, I hate minorities. It's simply that I, I cannot bear terrible movies. And The Last Jedi was a legitimately terrible film. Um, and I've gone back and watched Solo since uh, seeing it at the cinema. And it, I was just so bored by it. It's a film that's just fine and okay. Um, you know, Smuggler with a Heart of Gold helps the good guys, and we've been there and done that with A New Hope, and I, I just think with Star Wars, just give us something new. I think it's harsh on Solo that it was a flop. Uh, there's been a lot worse, um, the, the, but I think it, it was it was, it was was harmed because of The Last Jedi. I think people just said, no thanks, I'm done for a while. And, and it, was, it was quite interesting, because my girlfriend's daughter and her friends will go and watch almost anything, um, any kind of franchise film, Fast and the Furious, Mission Impossible, Marvel, whatever, DC. And with Solo, they were just like, not a chance. And it was telling, no one was talking about it. No one seemed bothered. And should this Star Wars film flop, this new one coming out, I think we could see Star Wars kind of go on the back burner for a little bit. It's so clearly now just another product for Disney. And I... I, I I think we have to kind of go back to, to Lucas making A New Hope. Um, it was a film, a, a kind of a film nerd against the system, and he won. He played the studio system and was the rebel that changed the industry. And somehow, you know, I'm asking myself, well, what happened, really? Because he sold it back into the very system that he was trying to kind of get away from. And... It's just Star Wars is just another brand. It's another product that's churned out by a massive corporation. And part of me is kind of glad Solo lost money. It might be a wake-up call. But Star Wars coming to Disneyland and Disney World, these these products and these toys aren't going to sell themselves. And I think films will be the medium through which it does, does that. And I hope it does get back on track. I want to love Star Wars again, but I think it's going to be a very hard slog in the next few years to uh, not come to the rather grouchy um, opinion that Star Wars is just the original trilogy and that's it. But we shall see. 
Okay, some other films that I saw and really enjoyed. Um, a Quiet Place was in my top ten for quite a while. This was a, a horror film that I had a great time with. It felt like it was almost like kind of like the the perfect Hollywood film for me. Kind of a mid budget horror film that was an hour and a half that made me kind of sweat. Actually, I I, I was I really reacted to it quite viscerally. Um, I just had a thoroughly good time of it. It was kind of daft. It did. It did almost everything right for me. Um, I, I've, I've watched it a couple of times since, and, I, and I've really enjoyed going back to it. The 517 to Paris was a Clint Eastwood film, which I actually was on Twitter, and I was ripping into this film for about half an hour. And if you haven't seen it, it's a really interesting film experiment because the it deals with um, a thwarted terrorist attack by a group of millennials on their kind of summer holiday in which the heroes of the actual event play themselves and at first I was kind of consciously aware of the fact that the film was kind of boring the acting wasn't very good it was quite jingoistic and kind of slightly cheesy as well and then something happened I did a complete u-turn whilst I was watching it and I suddenly really began to respect the film because so often when we see true stories, we see actors playing characters who they're either, you know, that we'll see like a 30-year-old playing a 20-year-old and you, you kind of, you, you can't get away from the artifice of seeing a star in a certain role. And here you have the actual individuals who did what they did on the day playing themselves and I thought it was incredibly moving. It might not work entirely, but what got me was at the end, you see them getting awards from the French president and it just goes to actual news footage and it suddenly made me respect them. So again, I was just kind of aware that these were real life heroes who, and you know, millennials are a quite derided generation, but these guys stood up and did something that was completely extraordinary. And I actually found it to be a very moving film. Um, lots of people hated it um, and were quite kind of dismissive of it, as I was for quite a long time. But overall, I, I think it's a really interesting experiment in film and it, and it, it really worked for me. Um, Iceman was a kind of revenant type film, which was um, based on a body that was found um, frozen in ice by some climbers in the Alps in the 1990s. And I think the, bo the body was like a, a couple of thousand years old or something like that. And what they've done with this film is they've kind of imagined how this person died because the person in question um, had, f I think he had four or five other people's blood on him, which they did through DNA tests. Um, I think his skull had been caved in. He'd clearly been in an awful fight. And Iceman kind of recreates his, uh, well, this, this person's supposed kind of last few hours of his life. It's very Revenant-esque, and it's actually made in a language which has long since died, which was around the Alps and the Pyrenees um, a, a couple of thousand years ago, however, and it doesn't have any subtitles at all, and it was a really interesting film experiment that's absolutely beautiful to watch, clearly being filmed on drones. It was, yeah, it was kind of like The Revenant, but just a whole lot more enjoyable, and it was a, a definite little kind of quirky little surprise. And um, Peter Jackson's documentary, Thou Shall Not Grow Old, which repurposed his 
old footage from the First World War colorizes it, which is something I'm not normally a fan of. But this film is absolutely astonishing. Um, it's the best thing Peter Jackson has done in years. Um, it's thoroughly moving. It kind of reminded me in its tone and style of kind of like Ken Burns, where the, you know, the camera suddenly lingers on these kind of young men who stare back into the camera and obviously something can when this was when it was being filmed it was the um sort of the birth of cinema people and you can see the kind of the people in it staring at the camera in wonder and it's incredibly tragic when you kind of see see these young men knowing that they've probably died they've kind of um adr'd as well in by doing uh, lip reading it seems so it just brought history to life um, it was thoroughly captivating stuff and it narrowly missed out on my top 10. Um, under the pear tree was uh, new village students a uh, follow-up to winter light and i am a big big fan of his films and his work this one yeah i was not i liked it and I will watch it again, but it did not get me the same way um, that Once Upon a Time in Anatolia did. And sorry, Winter Sleep was what I meant to say. His, his previous film, which I was on board with that up until the last 20 minutes, but The Wild Pear Tree um, is beautiful. It's, a, it's, a, it's definitely the best looking film I think he's made so far. Just these locations that he finds and the the way in which he photographs the landscape, uh, the landscape, sorry, is, is is absolutely stunning at times. And I think I do need to see it again. It, it kind of takes place in a series of vignettes. There's a big difference in the quality in, within the film's kind of internal structure between these episodes and these vignettes. And I did find it kind of had peaks and troughs. And it obviously, at three hours, there's a lot to take in. And at its best, I think it's an incredibly powerful look at a family and what kind of, what a place does to people and how they look back over their lives. And at its worst, I think it was slightly too ponderous and I don't want to use the term self-indulgent, but I felt like the film was kind of going off on a tangent that I didn't really feel was connected to it as a whole. And as such, I kind of, I, I did find myself, my mind beginning to wander as it was going on. First Man was Damien Chazelle's follow-up to La La Land. And this one, I kind of knew that people were going to go absolutely crazy about this film before it even came out. And it kind of ticked all the boxes. It was being filmed on film and it was about this kind of amazing chapter in human exploration and telling the story of uh, Neil Armstrong. And it was certainly a cinematic experience that I, I was just blown away by. And it was my first real kind of testing of the Dolby Atmos sound system and where it worked so well was when it was up in space and we could kind of see Armstrong doing his thing and there's no doubt about it that the, the, the space sequences and the final landing on the moon were absolutely stunning but everything on Earth was excruciatingly dull I thought um, Ryan Gosling seems to just kind of his performance just kind of really seems to consist of just kind of staring quite blankly into the middle distance to kind of convey Armstrong's inner angst and hurt 
and it didn't really do a whole heap for me. I think for kind of the detractors of Ryan Gosling, this film will be manna from heaven. But I, I, I'm going to watch it again. I, I do want to see it again. But I just, I felt that it was a good, solid film. But it was just suffering from the fact that the juxtaposition of this rather kind of dull melodrama on earth between Armstrong and his wife was just simply eclipsed from the thing that we know is ultimately the most interesting part of Armstrong's life, i.e. going to the moon. Um, I will watch it again, I think. Um, it's definitely one I think I might be checking out on UHD, but yeah, I did cop a little bit of shit for uh, not going crazy over it on Twitter, which I was kind of expecting, and um, perhaps I might be wrong. It might be one of those that in further viewings I... Uh, grow to love a lot more certainly i've just finished reading a book about the moon landing and it certainly has spiked my interest from that department okay so moving on we're going to get onto the top 10 now um these could really be in any order apart from the top two so um it, it's pretty much just uh there, there's going to be a random few chucked in um, some of them i've already talked about on the podcast so i'm not going to dwell on those so i'll probably put them at the top but yeah this is pretty much um, anything goes in terms of order up until the top 10. So without any further ado, these were my top 10 favourite films of 2018. And at number 10 is a film I've already done an episode on, um, that's I, Tonya. Um, still really like this film. I'm quite surprised with, El with I, Tonya in the fact that I really, really honestly thought that this film would be a lot more popular than it actually is. And I think that a lot of the criticisms uh, I have read of it seem to stem from the fact that a lot of people think it's kind of quite derivative American rock soundtrack. And you can see the kind of the Scorsese kind of good fellas uh, visual vibe going on. But I still thought it was a quite brilliant film. Extremely funny, very disturbing at times. Um, about deeply flawed people and it manages to kind of create I think quite a moving story out of deeply dysfunctional individuals I think there is an aspect to it though where um, I kind of feel bad for um, Nancy Kerrigan who is the, the real victim of this film I, I think she deserves a little bit more uh, screen time than she actually gets but Overall, uh, I really, really loved I, Tonya. It, I, it was just kind of disturbing one minute, hilarious the next. The performance from Alison Janey, I thought, was absolutely superb. Made all the more better because of yeah, you can go back and see all the, those clips on YouTube of um, Tonya Harding's actual mother, who seems to be as despicable <laughs> um, in, in real life, really, as she, she is in the film. But, yeah. Number 10, I, Tonya. It is available on Amazon Prime to watch for free if you want, and I can definitely recommend giving it a go. Now, number nine. And I would say this is going to be a bit of a tough sell. Hopefully, um, you will uh, heed my advice and watch this film. But next up is a micro-budget documentary I saw called Newtown Utopia, which was about the new town of Basildon near London that charts the story of this town from its inception as a kind of commuter utopia to its invariable fall. And this fascinating film is a poignant and moving portrayal of the people who experience Basildon's rise and fall. Now, I've been to Basildon. 
it's between Southend and London and it's the kind of place you can drive through and not in any way actually notice there's the odd block of flats and rows and rows of similar looking local authority houses. And it's tempting to write off such a nondescript place as just another suburb of London. Yet Basildon represents a bold attempt at creating a new form of socially engineered town. Its buildings would bring communities together. The high rises would accommodate the finest, doctors, lawyers, whilst the rest of the population would live in purpose-built estates with central areas for parks and recreation. Now, Jim Broadbent provides a ironic audio presentation of Clement Attlee's planning minister, Lewis Silkin, offering a contemporary view on how wonderful this project is going to be. The problem of rocketeering property prices in London all solved in an architectural wonderland. The slow dolly shots through the town in the present begin to paint a very different picture from what we are seeing. Not only is this the kind of place you want to drive through, it's hardly the place you want to stop either. The eerie looking brutally makes you wonder if Silken ever looked at the plans himself and indeed the narration gives the feeling of distant political class who have bought into an idea that has been sold to them by social scientists and snake oil salesmen. The ideal community that was envisaged quickly gives away to a new type of social behaviour. The wrong look in a pub could result in a kicking and Basildon's residents, who are the main subjects of the film, begin to tell their stories and it's tragically apparent the town fast became a failed experiment. Yet there is hope and as Basildon declined gain speed, a thriving and diverse art scene begins to flourish from the concrete landscape. Music, theatre and art begin to thrive, Depeche Mode being one of the town's most famous creations. And as the parks lose their funding and the public toilets are closed and Thatcher's right to buy scheme creates an inflated property market, the town soon begins to descend even further. The founding ideals of Basildon are subsequently sold off, the high rises become homes of drug addicts and the, the closing down of factories in the air means that people end up simply having to commute to London anyway to get there even though the high-speed trains that were once promised never really were never delivered. The subjects interviewed are introduced by their first name. Jim, Wendy and co talk passionately about moving to Basel and away from the London slums of rat-infested houses to this wonder of having an indoor toilet in their new homes. Their betrayal by a successive government is shocking, yet there is hope in the film. The town was conceived and built to produce a better kind of citizen. What this means is debatable, but it certainly appears that the subjects of Newtown Utopia discover the therapeutic and transformative power of art into their lives. This town could have driven them into the ground, but they're more resilient than that. And what and the film could have become a political diatribe, but it actually becomes something far more hopeful and an essay on the human spirit. Even when our elected officials let us down so badly, it does seem there is a way through the darkness. Now, the film was funded largely through Kickstarter, and it seems to be the most fitting way of bringing the film into existence, given its subject matter. And for its sadness, Utown Utopia offers a reassuring lesson in the inherent decency, creativity, and the resilience of people in this community. Okay, next up was Javier Legrand's debut feature, Custody, which was easily, I think, one of the most outright terrifying films that I saw in all of 2018. Because um, this one really hit home personally, and there's no way I can really talk about this film without going into kind of quite personal details, which um, I shall do in due course. But when I went into custody, for some reason, I had it in my head that 
the film was actually a, a horror film. And it started off, we see a married couple who are in kind of, um, I suppose it's like a magistrate's court in France, and they're discussing access rights to their two children. And the husband, we learn, might be have kind of temperament issues. He blames her for being awkward, annoying. Um, the wife tells the judge that he is unreasonable. Um, he's been violent in the past. And the judge is trying to sit there and make sense of all of what is being said. Eventually, the judge decides to award custody rights to both parents. They will, uh, he will have visitation for the children at the weekends. And we go off and you're kind of left with a sense that there are from this encounter that there's two sides to every story. And at this point in the film, it's kind of hard to see where the loyalties of the film are going to go. Now, the husband Antoine, played by uh, Dennis Minasher, I think is how you pronounce it, quickly begins to show himself that he really isn't in any way, shape or form fit to be anywhere near his children he won't see well the daughter refuses to see him and unfortunately it is the son who is left to go to his at the weekends and we learn very quickly that this man is clearly deeply disturbed emotionally damaged by the whole kind of divorce process and I began to get quite anxious when I was watching the film because I had it in my head obviously that this was a horror film. I was waiting for the moment for things to start to go crazy. And there was another thing that made me actually think uh, something was going to happen because there was a scene where we, where you see that the daughter, I think she's like 17, 18 or something like that, um, is actually pregnant. And I was kind of thinking perhaps there was going to be some kind of like kind of carry like awakening going on. And I'm watching it for about 40 minutes and I'm seeing this character, this uh, Antoine character, getting more and more angry. And it began to dawn on me, this is sort of a, a reality for my, my girlfriend and I with her ex-husband. He fortunately lives nowhere near her anymore. But there was a phase uh, about two or three years ago um, where we were having all kinds of problems with him. He would be turning up at the house. Um, he would. He actually stole my wallet once and uh, uh, ran off with it. Um, various other issues that we were having certainly trying to use the kids as a kind of a an emotional weapon and it was incredibly unsavory and it never ever kind of got to kind of physical violence or anything like that but it was incredibly unsettling um and it was this kind of just constant stress that we were under because of him and this film captures that just absolute sense of trying to do the best thing in the worst situation. The mother, uh, Miriam, played by Leah Drucker, her performance was absolutely captivating. I mean, it's so hard in these situations to do the right thing by the children. But when obviously, um, especially in, in, in the case of custody and in the case of my circumstances, uh, you know, these people shouldn't be allowed anywhere near their children. They don't know what's best for them. They are just in doing horrendous damage to 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 the to the children and custody absolutely nailed that and i was watching the film and again i come back to this i was waiting for this to turn into a horror film i was waiting for it to to go crazy and then it dawned on me it wasn't a horror film i was actually right but i had exactly the same fear and tension that you would get were it a horror film and it had the right it even had the kind of the same built this 
this same beats, sorry, this idea that the film is building towards something utterly horrific. And I, I think the final 15 minutes of this film were the most stressful, I think, I had. Um, it was so unpleasant to watch. And it, it was making me ask questions, you know, like, what if such a thing had happened? And it reminded me, it's, it's vaguely, it's, it's not even a kind of vaguely humorous, but one night, my, my girlfriend's kind of got a, she kind of built her own house and half of it's actually like, one side of it's actually glass. And one night, about three o'clock in the morning, we heard this crashing, basically. And I kind of got out and started to walk down the corridor towards the window. And it was incredibly foggy outside. And I couldn't actually see what was going on from the fact that there was this almighty banging against the window. And then that moved to upstairs. And I actually thought in the moment that her ex-husband had come round to the house and something utterly terrifying was go- was going to happen and i had exactly the same fear for um miriam and her son uh, joel in in this film that i experienced then now luckily what the perpetrator was um when we finally worked out what was going on was a goat had seen its own reflection in the side of my girlfriend's house and was actually trying to fight itself by headbutting the window and then they'd kind of like gone upstairs and was banging against the door so ours actually had a, a, a vaguely amusing ending however in this case custody is an absolute emotionally wrecking film um i don't know that i could ever watch it again i i i, I think it's too it's too raw for me and it's 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 such a well-crafted film and it, it, it only an hour and a half as well i mean this there's a tendency sometimes with these films i think to kind of go on and on and on and kind of really kind of ramp up the the emotion and, and the kind of the melodrama. But this is a very lean film that just shows you this slice of kind of family dysfunction. Um, I won't obviously ruin the ending, but it was a draining experience. Uh, it was an, an interesting film to watch as well, going into something, thinking that you're actually in another genre and applying and, and seeing all the tropes from another genre in a film which isn't it's you know it's a it's a drama it's, a, it's just a you know a, a plain drama film <clears throat> but it was interesting it was just fascinating to see how reality can be just as terrifying as anything that you get through the supernatural so yeah custody i <clears throat> i recommend it with caveats that uh, it's a very hard film to get through, but I think it's a very rewarding film to see as well. It's a, it's like an even meaner Darden End Brothers film, I think. Um, it, it's, it's quite brilliant, and uh, I can definitely recommend uh, seeking it out. Uh, I'm, I'm not, it, I, I'm pretty certain it might be coming on um, Amazon Prime quite soon. So if it were, if it does or comes on Netflix, I, I will make you aware of it in the next episode. Okay, next up was the documentary Free Solo. I spoke about that in the last episode. Um, it has just gone on to win a BAFTA, I understand. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping this one will... Uh, well, it's definitely my favourite documentary of the year. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing it again. Um, it really... It was, it was such a good, fun film and such an incredible watch. And uh, it made me very, very nostalgic uh, for my holiday. And I really do need to start unsubscribing to posts about Yosemite National Park because all it makes me want to do is go back there as soon as, as, as is humanly possible. Next up was Paul Pawliski's Cold War. Uh, 
Now, this was one seriously epic film that took place over several decades, yet somehow managed to only be 85 minutes in running time. And now, Cold War, I thought, was a really unique film. At times, it reminded me of something that David Lean would have directed, a really epic love story over many decades that kind of... This story of two characters, Victor and Zula, who fall deeply uh, in love. And it's a very dysfunctional kind of romance. That this It feels more like kind of this... Something even beyond infatuation, but they just cannot quite seem to uh, find, I, I suppose, an equilibrium in their lives that means they can live happily together. And this is all taking back over, um, taking part obviously during the kind of the Cold War. And we kind of flick from various locations, from Paris to, I think it's Croatia. They're in at one stage, and then we go via a kind of a gulag and then various other kind of tragedies before them and I was absolutely transfixed by this film I would say quite honestly that I didn't necessarily like the characters a great deal I just felt there was something I just felt there was something completely captivating about watching their lives unfold it's an it's an annoying film to watch because the kind of the social political circumstances that they find these themselves under um, make their relationship so hard, and the fact that they are so cruel to each other a lot of the time, you just want to kind of bang their heads together and kind of tell them to sort it out. But it is a beautiful film. Some of the scenes are so well choreographed. It's it's a stunning work. Um, I know that a lot of people weren't so keen on its ending. And I actually, I, the ending really worked for me. I, I thought it was um, incredibly moving. And given these two characters' life, I kind of thought it was a fitting conclusion to what had gone before. Because I, I have a friend who's in a relationship that is just, it's, it's a catastrophe, really. Yeah, it, It's kind of, it, it's... Its peaks are so high and its its lows are so low that you kind of wonder what the point is. But sometimes um, it, it seems that that is what some people end up being like. It kind of feels like that that's kind of that what they're destined to be with. And Cold War, I thought, was kind of the, the, the shortest epic that I've ever seen. Um, and it, it, it worked totally for me. I, I can't wait to go back to it again. Um, it sounds kind of odd, but sometimes when you know the ending of a film and it, it, you know that it's a satisfying ending, that you know that in your own head that you, you kind of made peace with it, I think it can be really nice going back and then watching it again, freed from this kind of expectation of where you think the film's heading and go back and kind of pick up the nuances and kind of revel in the, the the art and the the craft of the film and that's certainly something which i think is going to happen with me and cold war okay so next up was sweet country which was an australian film directed by warwick thornton and this was easily the most beautiful film that I saw all year. Uh, Thornton was also the cinematographer on it. And Sweet Country is 
for all intents and purposes, has the kind of look and feel of a Western set in the 1920s in the aftermath of World War One. It follows a Aboriginal farm worker called Sam, whose wife is raped by a severely traumatised soldier from the First World War. And Sam takes the law into his own hands and ends up having to go on the run with his wife into the outback whilst being pursued by the local authorities and a posse of racist diehards from the local town. Over its two-hour running time, the film becomes a, a courtroom drama with this particular courtroom playing out in the street whilst the locals laugh at Sam, mocking him that he's going to be found guilty and subsequently hung. This was at times quite a shocking film to watch. The level of racism um, displayed by the characters is, is still startles. Um, and I think when you kind of see kind of Sam and the other Aboriginal workers going about their day in the film, the dignity that they conduct themselves in light of the treatment they're receiving. And one thing I liked about Sweet Country is that I never felt I was being preached to or that this was some kind of history lesson. It just felt very real and very raw and you can kind of draw your own conclusions from it. It was completely mesmerising, utterly gripping and it's always good to see Sam Neill plays one of the characters in the film and I think Sam Neill is one of the most underrated actors actually over the past few years. I think he's quite brilliant and he... He really kind of brings a uh, gravitas to the, his performance. But the real star, I think, is Hamilton Morris uh, um, as, as the lead character, Sam, who, to my knowledge, I'm not actually sure. I, I think this might have been his first film. I don't know. But he just, his, his rage and his feeling of unjust are just so well managed throughout the film. There was one scene with his wife, um, where she confesses to having been raped by the soldier. And his reaction, really the distillation of the gross injustice that he's been subjected to through the, through the whole film. And the film was brave enough to make that scene one in which we can look at his behaviour and chastise him for it, but not take away from our, our sympathy for this character and the situation that they find themselves in. Um, I won't ruin the end, um, but this the, it really did linger long in the memory of this one. I was, uh, yeah, fairly f fairly shocked and saddened by it. But um, Sweet Country is currently playing on Sky at the moment in the UK. If you have that, you'll be able to find it there. Now, next up was the film which made me laugh the most this year, which was Ruben Ostlund's follow-up to Force Majeure, which was a, a favourite film of mine when it came out in 2014. And this was The Square, which follows the trials and tribulations of Christian, who is a curator at a art museum in Stockholm. Um, Christian is a disaster, to put it mildly. Everything he does seems to be the wrong decision from getting ripped off in a confidence trick to managing to fuck up a one-night stand in the most hilarious way possible to being a completely useless father, ex-husband, and a kind of terrible art curator as well. The film is 
painful to watch at times with its levels of pretentiousness that some of the characters spout and working within this sphere I was watching some of the scenes through my hands because they were resonating so much with me and this this whole and and the square is not a subtle film to say least it's not particularly sophisticated in its levels of humor there is a moment when a, an artist played by Dominic West is giving like a kind of a, a Q&A session and someone in the audience has Tourette's and starts interrupting him with through no thought of the person's own but it's 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 such an obvious kind of gag and it's so crude it, it, it borders on something you would see from kind of the Farrelly brothers or something like that but I still found it to be utterly hilarious I found that kind of the trashiness of it the obvious of it to be just brilliant and I really did laugh throughout the square it was just stupid fun and it culminates in one of possibly the most uncomfortable scenes I've seen in a film in years where Christian organises a performance artist who pretends to be an ape to kind of give this, uh, <laughs> this, this I suppose, uh, installation-style performance um, at a, a huge dinner. And it, it, it's, it's, it's borderline unwatchable. And, and this scene just goes on and on and on, getting more and more uncomfortable. And I was begging for Oslin to cut and move us out. And he doesn't. He places you in the room with these people experiencing this absolute horror show that's being performed. And the performance as well by Terry Nutri, who he has been, he, he does a lot of the capture work for things like Rise of the Planet of the Apes and Kong Skull Island. And this was just incredible that the physique on the man and the dedication to his role um and it sounds ridiculous Anna Hathaway won an Oscar for basically crying for three minutes while she sung I, and I really do think if if she can get an Oscar for that my god he deserves one for this but I know a lot of people who weren't particularly happy with the direction that the square goes in and I, I for one didn't bother me I mean it kind of revolves around a controversial viral video that gets made about one of the up-and-coming exhibitions that Christian's putting on. And a few people, I th I think, found that it went into slightly worthy territory and it was kind of going down a direction which I don't think people really wanted it to. Again, it was the funniest thing that I saw all year. I, I, I really think Austin's got a... a, he's, a he's a true auteur, and I, I think we can kind of talk about the... Certainly it's a companion piece. I've only seen this in Force Majeure, but there was this kind of through line of useless males in the modern world that I think it's an interesting voice that he's found I, mean, I haven't seen any of these other films and I really do want to kind of go and check them out to kind of see if this is kind of like a, a, a something that repeats in his work but in the age of kind of you know man up and toxic masculinity and all this kind of thing I think there is a kind of confusion as to what the role of men is becoming in society and it, it's I, I think it's in a state of flux really as, as to how we perceive men and I certainly think that this film kind of captures the frustrations and the confusion has had to how we place men in modern society but overall um square just a fantastic experience hilariously funny gorgeously shot and the performances were absolutely top-notch throughout so of course there was going to be so moving on to my next choice this was the film that 
possibly surprised me the most, I think. Um, certainly what my expectations were going into it. Now, this is the fourth time that A Star Is Born has been made in Hollywood. And each of the versions, for various reasons, are interesting. The My particular favourite, I think, is the 1950s um, Judy Garland version, which I also think is one of the, the best produced Hollywood films of all time. There is, of course, the 70s Streisand and um, Chris Christopherson, A Star Is Born, which is an interesting time capture. I think it's very much a product of its 1970s time. And then, of course, we come on to Bradley Cooper's new incarnation of the film. Um, I was, I, I suppose my eyebrows were raised when Lady Gaga was announced as being the lead character, Ali. Um, I'm not a particular fan of her music. Um, I never really have been. And she does annoy me a little bit in the fact that people refer to her as Gaga. I find that quite irritating, to be brutally honest with you. But here she completely buys into the character of Ali. I think she was a revelation, actually, in this. Um, she makes you kind of see through the fact that she's obviously a star, i.e. Lady Gaga, and takes this character of Ali back to a time, I probably something she can relate to, when she was simply singing in bars and trying to kind of find her way in the music world. And along comes, of course, the quite stunning-looking... Uh, Bradley Cooper as Jackson Maine, a kind of country rock star who is completely ravaged by alcoholism and uh, drug addiction and obviously tries to turn Ali into a star. And A Star Is Born works. The chemistry between Cooper and Lady Gaga is incredible, I think. It, they, they were, they're the most realistic couple I've seen in a long time. I completely brought into their relationship and her desperately trying to keep her husband away from his demons and him struggling to come to terms with the fact that his presence in the world is going to have dire, conse dire consequences for Ali's career. The film... I completely believed A Star Is Born. It was helped in part, I think, by the fact that the music scenes didn't have huge, vast CGI crowds. They actually went out to festivals and shot in between artists. And I completely bought into it. It goes big and it also goes kind of very intimate at times. And it seemed like a modern Hollywood film that was completely dedicated to its story and its characters and doing them justice. And it felt very real. There was just none of this artifice. I've seen trailers for something like Bohemian Rhapsody, which just looks like, I mean, I'm sure there'll be a sing-along version or something like that. And I think A Star Is Born is, is everything away from that kind of polished, scrubbed studio film. And it, at times, I think it kind of veers from something like a John Cassavetes film to a kind of old-fashioned road movie and as the kind of the relationship between Jackson and Ali goes on it, it's, it's very easy I think to with, with modernized look at what he's doing as being incredibly manipulative and his, his kind of 
selfishness, but I think that's integral to the character. You, it, it's okay not to like Jackson Maine. It's uh, at times I I do actually think he's a kind of a, an incredibly sympathetic person, but you you feel really I think the, the film's heart and soul comes through Ali as she tries to kind of salvage everything and make everyone happy, and I found the ending to be incredibly moving. Um, we get the triumphant ballad at the end and when Lady Gaga is singing I'll Never Love Again I, I, I really I think you can really feel in her performance I understand that, that um, prior to that happening um, a, a very close friend of hers actually died of cancer I think it was on that day and I think she kind of channels all that pain and anguish into this performance and it, it won me over I, I'm, I was complete I, I was dismissive of, of, of we haven't even watched a frame of it but um it's a beautiful film it's an incredibly moving i don't know if i could go back to it anytime soon um i think i i need to kind of give it some space and perhaps uh watch it again in a few months but the one thing that really struck me about a star is born is that i don't know anyone who has seen the film who hasn't been really kind of blown away by it and people seem to be taking different things out of it i the bit where it got me i think was the relationship between jackson and his brother played by sam neil and i know a few of the people who have commented on that but everyone seems to have found an emotional connection to a star is born and to me that's really encouraging because in a way i think it kind of shows how powerful films still can be to us um People don't have, I, I don't tend to have the type of conversations I've been having about A Star Is Born with people coming off the back of watching another series on Netflix. And, and, I, and I think, judged by, I know, I, I, judging by the people, I mean, I saw it twice at the cinema, I know a few of the people who did, it seems to have been a, a, a studio film made for adults that has really worked for adults. And it has, it, it's bypassed, I think, a lot of the kind of the sneering kind of criticisms by its quality alone. It's a real film made for adults you know on a, on a really big budget ish but yeah it, it feels it, it felt like a timely reminder to us that well to me at least sorry that films really do matter in our culture and they can have the power to move and to make you believe for two hours that this couple who don't exist in the real world really do exist um my, my i guess my only kind of criticism of a star is born might come in the fact that I just felt at times Bradley Cooper, he, he's, his performance is great, but I felt sometimes he's kind of like he's singing. He was just, he was a little bit too hard, almost like a slight pastiche of a rock star. And it's not to say that I, I you know, I, I, I thought that his performance was, was hammy. It just seemed a little bit, it was trying a little bit too hard. But what the film does have as well, which I think was is crucial to it, it has a decent soundtrack. You can legitimately listen to the songs of it, and I and I think there's there's some good tracks in there, and they had kind of help with you know multiple writers. I think Willie Nelson was involved as well in some of it, and uh, yeah, overall, um, it, it's perfect. Go and buy the the Blu-ray, pick up the soundtrack, um, and it was a real true film. I hope it wins at the Oscars. Actually, I think it deserves to, but we shall see. So next up was the film that was at number one for most of the year, and that was Paul Thomas and Anderson's Phantom Thread. Um, I've already done an episode on this, so uh, go you can find it, I think it was in January last year, actually. So go back, um, watched it again since, yep, still love this film. Um, it's brilliant fun. Just if this is going to be Daniel Day-Lewis's uh, last ever performance, then yeah, he's, he's bowing out with certainly my favourite Paul Thomas Anderson film in a long time. Um, and one of his best performances um, he, 
he should have walked away with an Oscar for this one as well. But never mind. Um, number two, Phantom Thread, which brings me to my number one. Now, um, I was waiting in 2018 for a film to come along and just kind of knock me for six. And it kind of happened with A Star Is Born and Phantom Thread. But I, I wanted that film that kind of just made me kind of jaw hit the floor. And I, I, I don't need to, term, I, I, I don't want to say I wanted to see a masterpiece, but I wanted to see a film that I knew was going to become one of my favourites. I wanted to kind of have that feeling and it's, there's no better um, experience when you're watching a film and you, and you just know that it's going to be one of your favourites. You know you're going to go back to it. You know that it means something to you. And I had that experience and I'm ashamed to say I got sent through the disc from Cinema Paradiso, which is the excellent online uh, video rental company um, in the after the kind of love film uh, was swallowed up by Amazon. And I sat there and I had the disc for Andre, and I'm, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, I will do my best, Zinagest, uh, Zinatef, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but the film was Loveless, and you might know him, He's the he, his last film was Leviathan, an equally brilliant film as well. But Loveless was the film that came along and just knocked me for six on paper, Loveless kind of sounds like a fairly kind of standard thriller almost. A soon-to-be-divorced couple, Zayana and Boris, have a son who neither of them wants to care for. They don't really have any interest of him. Both Zena has, sorry, Zayana has a a new boyfriend, um, someone who is a lot older than her, a lot richer. And Boris has another girlfriend who's actually pregnant with his baby. And neither Xenia and Boris want to care for their own son. And they decide that they will send him off to boarding school. And then after that, he can go to military school. And they kind of argue about who actually wanted him in the first place. He was a complete and utter mistake. Xenia goes to the toilet. And then we see hiding in the corner as the door shuts their son, who has heard the entire conversation and lets out a kind of a silent scream of just utter anguish that was um, one of the <laughs> the most, uh, frankly, moving things I, I saw all year. And the next day, runs away from home. And Xenia and Boris are forced to come together to try and find their son. They originally go to the police. The police say he's probably just run off. He'll come back in a few days. And they do suggest that there is another thing they can do, which is that there's like a search and rescue team, which is a kind of a, a collection of local volunteers who can try and put up posters and ask the questions and try and find out what's happened to their son. So these guys are recruited to help and Xenia and Boris have to cooperate together in order to work out what's going on. Now, there is a problem here because Zenya and Boris are easily the most unlikable pair of characters you will ever come across. They are absolutely despicable people. Boris is a terrible father. He treats his new partner, who's pregnant, with a kind of disdain. Really, doesn't really. Care. You can you can tell that this relationship that he's having with his new with his new partner is going to be as toxic as the one that he's had with Zenya. Zenya wants to move out of the relationship. She always felt that Boris was a means to an end. She met him, got pregnant with him, had the child in order to get away from her 
equally vile mother who we see at some stage during the film. But Xenia sees herself as slightly different. She wants to kind of socially progress and she's doing this through her new boyfriend who you can imagine in the modern Russia was able to kind of make his fortune. He doesn't seem to be a millionaire, but he has a very nice apartment and he's obviously a man of wealth and she thinks she believes that she should be in that world. She's always on Instagram and social media posting selfies or just basically just constantly seeking approval and attention through it. And in coming together, you want them to find some kind of humanity between them, some kind of link that that means they can put aside their differences and try and find what's happened to their boy. Only they don't. The This tragedy that is unfolding actually makes the problems between them even worse. They are literally torturing each other constantly, albeit from playing music loudly to smoking in the car to arguing and being vile to each other. And you want to scream at them and tell them to get together. And there's a, there's a part in the film where a body's found and they go to the morgue to identify it. And Xenia reacts in just utter horror to the sight of the corpse and Boris like puts an arm out to try and comfort and she just smashes it away and it's even in those types of moments that the film never allows these people to to be human or to be caring for each other and it's a strange one because I think I think Loveless represents and I, I don't know how much this applies to Russia obviously I, I from his other film Leviathan and I'm just gonna have to call him there uh, Andre here, Andre Zed, we'll call him, because I, I have no idea how I'm going to pronounce this name. But Le Leviathan kind of dealt with, I think, this idea of kind of corruption within the kind of the Putin-dominated uh, Russia. And here, I think, something is being said about the erosion of traditional families, this, this idea that it, it's not about the family unit anymore. And I, I don't know how indicative this is of Russian culture. I just don't know enough about the culture to, to be able to make these proclamations. But I'm, I'm sort of going with what I see in the world. I see a lot of parents who, they seem to be great parents on social media. That they, they put posts, you know, oh, it's my lovely boy's 10th birthday today. And everyone, you know, they just think, you know, it's, it's it seems to be a competition. And I, I there is something really, I suppose, on, on this issue which I'm kind of going to hold back on and not necessarily go down that road because I think it would just be way too personal for this podcast. But social media era is about the kind of the gratification. Like, here's a picture of my child on their first day at school. Isn't that great? Whereas when it comes to kind of doing the legwork of actually, you know, helping children with schoolwork and that kind of thing, I, I see a lot of evidence that's just that type of thing is being left behind. And it makes for, I think, kind of like quite a superficial culture that we have and our kind of how families are evolving in that world. I, I don't necessarily think it's, it's healthy. And in Loveless, I think you have really the distillation of the, the, the worst kind of neglect of this child. This just complete fascination with this. There's something better on the horizon, which both Boris and Xenia are looking for. And they, they just completely abandon it's, it's almost like they've just given up on this child because they hate each other so much. And it, it's it's horrible to watch. It's a really sad film to see. And the worst part was the film becomes kind of a thriller of sorts. You know, what has happened? Because you keep 
you, you keep ducking out of Boris and Xenia's life, you know, her with this new lover guy. And, and, and again, you, you, see, you kind of see this idea, you see this kind of theme of distance being reflected in her lover's relationship with his daughter. Um, she lives in Lisbon, I think it is, and she calls on Skype. And he's like, oh, when are you coming back to see me? And she goes, well, what, what, why? I, I don't need to. I can see you now. And it's that kind of technological barrier that's stopping from people from having kind of real kind of physical relationships with each other. And it's, it's for the detriment of society. And as the film, as we're ducking in and out of their lives, you keep coming back to what has happened to this child. And Andre Zed leaves nuggets in the film to suggest that any interpretation of what you think may have happened to this child could be real. There's a scene where Zenya goes um, to a restaurant and the, a, a waitress speaks directly to the camera, to a character that we never see. And you kind of wonder, is this some sort of stalker? Is it someone who's been, you know, going after the family and has taken the child? You don't know. The character's never referenced again. It's incredibly unsettling. And it's almost like you, you forget about it. And I mean, I, I completely forgot about it. And I was reading a review of the film and I came back and I was, and someone said about this, this scene in the restaurant. I was like, oh my God, yeah, that's true. And he might have just run away. He might have been kidnapped. He might have been murdered. You don't know. And it, it's infuriating in a way because I found myself, I wanted Xenia and Boris to be punished for, for what they've done to their child. And of course, that would mean something terrible happening to him. And it was a real kind of duality of thought where I, I was so worried about the boy's safety, but I also wanted them to get in trouble. Like, you know, and they, they seem to just get away with this incredible narcissist, narcissism that they both exhibit and the, the, the knock on effect of that. You know, they're not really responsible for a crime. Um, all they've done is have an honest conversation thinking their son wasn't in the room. And it, it feels like there should, there should be some higher punishment for them, which is, it doesn't come. And Loveless is a film as well, which always kind of reminds you of the world outside. We get You see this kind of almost, and I, I hate that it's such an overused term at the moment, but I suppose it's I've kind of got to, I've got to say it, but there's a kind of an Orwellian sense that there's this kind of far off war going on. Um, in this case, it's in the Ukraine, and you kind of keep seeing these news reports on the televisions about it. And there's a sense, I think, well, for me personally, how I kind of took this was, I felt like there was a world going to shit outside of the world that you're seeing in this film. Um, and it's quite telling, actually, that um, the, his last film, Leviathan, that actually received... Um, backing from the, the Russian Ministry of Culture, surprisingly enough, for such a kind of critical film. And they weren't particularly happy with it when it came out for obvious reasons. And Lovelace didn't receive any financial support f from within Russia. It was all made with foreign money. And I feel like this is a really kind of no-holds-barred depiction of a Russia which we, we tend... I, I think we, we, observe, we, we absorb that country through Vladimir Putin, I don't think we kind of ever really kind of get so personal as we do in these films. And it shows, I think, another Russia, one that is recognisable to ours. Like, it seems to be, a, I think, a kind of a real kind of common, a commonality of kind of, I suppose, all the ideals of the world, of the Cold War, which have now gone. And we now live in a modern kind of consumerist culture uh, that, that's I, I, I think is eerily reminiscent um, in Russia as it is 
in the West, and I, I'm not necessarily. I think that the film could. I, I don't think it feels provincial um, in, in a way. I, I think there is kind of like a. It, it does feel wider. It has more resonance than just what you see depicted in it. Um, Loveless takes you on a journey that is incredibly uncomfortable, and it, it's a traumatic film. I, I feel like you really get into the tragedy of this child's life even though he's only in it for like a few minutes his character and what that character represents resonates through it and long after the film had finished I I thought it was easily um, and Loveless makes for a very troubling I think journey into the modern world and it's one which I I personally think this I I know that this film um, is is one of my favourite films that I've seen in in a long time I mean I, I don't really necessarily I, I tend not to try and sort of say, oh, this this film's a masterpiece. It's amazing. You know, after one viewing, Dark Knight Syndrome, I call it. But I've watched it a couple of times since, and it, it, each time I just find it, it, it loses none of its impact. Um, I'm surprised I haven't seen it um, higher up on a lot of other people's lists. Um, but yeah, it was my film of the year by far. Um, a, a Stonewall five out of five possible classic film. Um, I, I really do urge you to seek it out i know you can pick it up um well tragically i know you could pick it up in fop uh, the now defunct store but um i think you can get it in, in hmv for like six quid or something like that so you can get it for like that that round that price point on uh, amazon of course if you've got a cinema paradiso account get it rented because uh, i think it would be well worth your time so that's going to be it um, for my 2018 review um sorry it's taking a little bit longer to come out um there's been a few issues going on so i, I didn't have time to kind of record it as, as soon as i wanted to but again i wanted to kind of give this give my give my list some time to kind of ferment and uh, there it is so <clears throat> many thanks for listening um let me know what your favorite films were as well in case there's anything i've missed stuff and you can give me some recommendations um onwards with 2019 um i've only seen one film in 2019 so far and that was the lego movie 2 and it was fucking terrible so hopefully that is not going to be um an indicator of what's to come this year so many thanks for listening again i will be in contact soon and if you want to find me, you can, I'm on Twitter at 24framescast. You can find me on 24framescast.blogspot.com. And you can always email me um, at 24framescast at gmail.com. I will be back soon. Bye.